so meaningful. And God wants us to talk with him about those very things. Let's do that right now. Let's talk to him. Father, you invite us to come to you in prayer, and we thank you for that invitation. We know, dear God, from the teaching of Scripture and from our own human experience, that you hear every prayer we ask. That you, dear God, answer every prayer. Oftentimes, you ask us to wait a bit, so we'll take notice of what's happening and know it's from you. Other times, dear God, you answer our prayers and we kind of miss it. And we have the opportunity to go back and realize that you've already asked and answered those prayers. I thank you. You always do what's in our best interest. That you really never surrender your sovereignty to us. I thank you, dear God, that you're in control of what goes on in this country and in this world. That you not only gave design to it and purpose to it, but that you monitor and superintend it on a moment-by-moment basis. And we thank you that you cause all things to work out according to your will. And that you do that by grace, and yet you do that by power. And we thank you for that, Lord. There are times, Father, we forget. Times when we try to play God in our own lives or the lives of other people. And things never quite work out like we want them to when we do that, Lord. I ask you to forgive us. And I pray that you'd help each one of us to be humbled before you. And that you'd help each one of us to trust you with the things and the people that are precious in our life. And for us, dear God, to be a forgiven people and learn as the days go by to trust you more and more. Sunday after Sunday, Lord, we call out to you publicly and and ask for your help with what's going on in our country. There are all kinds of indicators that you're not welcome here any longer, and I pray that you'd ignore that. And I pray, dear God, that your Holy Spirit would work through your church And that you would see renewal take place in our land, and that you would be the author of it. I pray, dear God, that there would not be an office, both in the business world or in a school or a hospital or anywhere else, where you do not make yourself known. We pray for your blessing for those who are in military uniforms and police uniforms and others who serve. And pray, Father, that you would help them be resilient and help them to trust you. And the more difficult their situations might be, the more we pray for that trust and for the peace that comes from you. Father, you're a loving God. As you have provided for children, you provide for us. You bring us into your family. And by your grace, Lord, you move on us and bring us into a saving relationship. We've come to say thank you for that today. Thank you, Lord, for what you do in our church. Thank you for what you do in our lives. When we gather, Lord, there are always things that are pressing on different people in our church. And I pray, O Lord, that you would help alleviate that pressure and that you would remind us that you're in control. Thank you for your love, and thank you for your grace. 
as we have come to know it through Jesus, your Son, our Savior, and through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, dear Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. A little unusual, but this morning I'd like us to look at three different passages. The first passage comes from Genesis 17, and it's going to begin in the ninth verse. Genesis 17, beginning in the ninth verse. And once you've found your place, if you'd put your finger in your Bible, and then flip over to Acts, to Acts 2.39. Genesis 17.9 and Acts 2.39. The third passage I'll take us back in Genesis in a moment. It seemed appropriate with the fact that we had the honor of baptizing two babies this morning and being involved with their family that I address that whole topic of infant baptism. So I've changed my preaching schedule for this morning and I'd like us to look at understanding infant baptism as it's biblically portrayed. So I'm going to look in Genesis and then Acts and then back to Genesis again. Let's pray before we read our Bible. Father, I pray that you'd open Scripture to us. You've allowed us to be rational beings. You've given us enough education, Lord, that we can understand most things. But most of us know, Lord, when we come to your word, that we need your help. That there are treasures here that we often would miss. So we come asking for your Holy Spirit to open your word to us and to help us understand and help us, dear God, to be impacted by what we understand with our head so that our heart follows. Thank you for what you're about to do, Lord. Bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that sets us apart from virtually everyone else in the world, is you and I have had an experience of grace. We have not been saved by anything we have or will do. God didn't look into our life and say, well, I know Dick's going to do this and Tom's going to do that, so I'm going to save them. Thank goodness he doesn't do that. Because he'd also see the other side of the ledger, wouldn't he? What God does, and this is something that we all hold to dearly, is he has called us to be his, and he works in our life through the power of his Holy Spirit, and he gives us an irresistible grace. And in his timing, we individually have responded and come to him. But I want you to know something. That's not the end of the story. He also has given his Holy Spirit to us. And he also, in addition to that, has shown us grace by creating a covenant relationship between himself and us. And what that covenant relationship is, not a negotiated contract, not where we sit down and say, Lord, we're going to have a part in the decision making. It's where he sits down and says, let me tell you how this relationship is going to work. I'm going to set out some guidelines for you, and I want you to follow them. 
and I'm going to help you do that. But God's the author of that. And as that covenant goes into place, by grace, he turns and gives us things like infant baptism to encourage us in that covenant and to help us to understand and to go where he wants us to go and to be the people he wants us to be. You and I are covered by grace. It's all about him and about what he does in our life and how he loves us. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you how that fits together. It grows out of the Old Testament. It's expressed again in the New Testament. And I want to show you that continuity. I'm going to start by reading from Genesis, the 17th chapter, with the ninth verse. Listen very carefully as God speaks. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in your house, or who is bought with your money from a foreigner, who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house, or who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. Thus says, shall my covenant be in your flesh For an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then if you look at Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And then back in Genesis, the 18th chapter, the 19th verse. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look at that first passage, the 17th chapter, verses 9 through 14, what you see is how the covenant is flushed out in the Old Testament and where circumcision fits into all of that. He uses some very specific words. He begins by saying to us, Now as for you, you shall keep. He's saying, I'm commanding you. I love you. I have done a work in your life. I'm now going to surround you with grace, and I want you to experience that blessing. And the way you experience it is by keeping the covenant. 
So we have a major responsibility in how that all works out in our life. He goes on and says that we shall circumcise all of our children, all of our little boys, and that's an outward sign. Our sacraments are outward signs of what's going on inside of us. It's our way of saying, I understand, and it's not just a sign, it's also a sealing. I'm part of this, and I declare I'm part of it. And then he says an interesting thing. If you stop and think about it, he says, and I want you to do this outward sign on all the little boys, at least by the time they're eight days old. They didn't have a say in that. Probably if they had a say in it, they would have voted against it. They didn't intellectually think, by faith, I understand what's going on, and this sign applies to me as a person in the sense of I've made some sort of a profession of faith. That wasn't possible. So what the sign is, is a sign of the covenant that God has placed on that whole family unit. And he used circumcision in the Old Testament to accomplish that. He goes on to say to us that we shouldn't neglect the sign. There's a rather stern warning in that passage. And if you look down at the last verse that I just read, at the 14th it says, But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Interesting thing. When God spoke to Abraham, he was saying to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to circumcise all the little boys who are under your influence. Understanding that the male was representative of the wife in time of the whole family. He said, I want you to have all the little boys circumcised. But if you look back at the passage carefully, he goes a step further. He says, I also want you to circumcise all the little boys who are servants in this house, who are not my descendants, who have grown up in this house. And then he goes a step further. He says, I also want you, Abraham, to circumcise all the little boys that you have bought with money and brought into your home to be servants. So it's not just descendants. It's everyone who lives under the influence of Abraham. It's a wide net that he has thrown. And what God is saying is, as an act of grace, I'm going to work through my servant Abraham. I'm going to get him to keep covenant. And when he keeps it, it's not just for his kinfolk. It's for everybody that he touches. But he says, if you neglect this, and if you look through biblical history, there are times when circumcision was neglected. He said, if you neglect this, those who are not circumcised are going to be cut off from their own people. Remember the people of Israel when they were disobedient to God and did not go into the promised land? And for 40 years, he forbid them to go in and had them walking in the desert. One of the things they did is they neglected circumcision. The whole nation, when they ultimately got back around to the Jordan and were about to cross over, virtually everyone except a couple of those people had died in the wilderness. 
And when they crossed over the Jordan River, they immediately circumcised every male in the nation. They once again went back to restore the covenant. What's it mean to be cut off? Some of you may remember the name Leighton Ford. Leighton is part of the Billy Graham organization. Back in the 60s and 70s, he and Billy shared the decision, Hour of Decision radio show. Uh, a man who touched a lot of lives. He said one time, this is what it means to be cut off from the family of God. He said it's like a pilot who's in a plane. His altimeter stops working. His radar stops working. His radio stops working and he's above the clouds and can't see the ground. I'd take Leighton's example a bit further. Being cut off from the family of God is like being in that airplane and deciding on your own you're going to go faster so you push the throttle forward and you go faster. And you decide you're going to slow down and you slow down. You can do rolls if you want to up there above the clouds. You can get that airplane to climb out and you can get it to dive. You can do all kinds of things, but it's going to run out of gas. And when it runs out of gas, it does come back through the clouds and it does crash. What God has said is, I don't want you to be out there all by yourself. I don't want you to be trying to think this up and figure it up day by day and moment by moment. Instead, I've created a covenant. Now, I've got my arms around you, and if you allow me, I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to guide you, and I'm going to influence you. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is I'm going to use people like Abraham, and I'm going to minister through him. He does that through the church today. You ever push the throttle forward? You ever done loop-de-loops? And thought, oh my goodness, look at me. You realize you're out of control? If you're not part of the things of God. So, what circumcision is, is an Old Testament sacrament that was set aside as an outward sign that God wants His people to be shoulder to shoulder with Him and spiritual leaders and for us to grow together and profit from being a part of what He's doing. Now, that transitions into New Testament time. And someone might rightly say, well, how do you get the infant baptism from circumcision? And there are a number of answers, and I'm going to give you a very simple one that I understand. New Testament church was mostly made up of Jewish people. Not exclusively, but mostly. And as they came, they brought their traditions with them, circumcision being one of those. As the church began to spread into Gentile lands, some of the Jewish enthusiasts followed the Christian preachers. And they said to people who were accepting Christ, that's not enough. You have to also be circumcised. Circumcision, infant baptism, None of those things, by God's intention, become a path to salvation in and of themselves. You don't have to do those things to be saved. You have to do one thing to be saved. What is that? 
Accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, knowing you're saved by His grace and that you're cleansed and forgiven through His shed blood. It's not by singing the hymns right. It's not by circumcision. It's not by infant or adult baptism. That's not how we're saved. Those things become works if we're not very careful. But they were given to us for a purpose. So during this transition period, there were those Jewish enthusiasts who wanted to legalize that and say, you may have accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you still have to be circumcised. And rightly so, the church pulled back from that. If that hadn't happened, there's a very good likelihood we'd still be circumcising for spiritual reasons. Instead, what happened, and this makes perfect sense, out of the Jewish tradition, there was a time of baptism when a Gentile would accept the faith and would become a Jew. They would take that person and they would stand them in a pool of water and one of the priests would take a pitcher of water and pour it over their head while they're standing in water. Not submersion, but would immerse them. Symbolic of the washing away of sin. Symbolic of being part of the family of God. The church reverted to that practice, which was very real to them, and they began to baptize. They began to baptize folks who accepted Jesus, not as anything more than an outward sign that something had already happened in here. So you come to the New Testament practice. In the New Testament, we have adults being baptized. We have children being baptized. And I want to walk you through a couple of passages that deal with the children. In Acts 16, if you take time when you get home today and you read through, you'll see the narrative about Lydia. Lydia comes to know Christ personally. And Scripture says she and her household were baptized. There are those who would like to write volumes of works over who lived in the household. I don't choose to go there. Most households have at least children, and we know from Abraham's family they also had servants and other people who lived in the house. So it's reasonable to believe that those who were under the influence of Lydia, whoever they were, were baptized. Philippian jailer, same chapter, chapter 16 of Acts. Philippian jailer comes under the power of the convicting spirit of God, accepts Christ as his personal Savior, and Scripture says he goes home and he and his household are saved and that they were baptized. In Matthew 9, there's a Jewish official. He has a child who becomes sick and dies. He goes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, won't you come and raise my son? Won't you give him back to me? Can't you envision yourself doing that with a child you love? Jesus doesn't go to the man's house. You remember what he does? He says, your faith is enough. I have raised your son. Your son's alive. Go home. Go see your boy. He's okay. And the boy was alive, and he was okay. You know what those three biblical examples 
are emphasizing. Not the faith of the children. Not the faith of the servants in those homes. What they are emphasizing is the faith of the father or the mother who is the spiritual influence in that home. And it's saying because of that person's faith, they're going to be used by God to minister to those who are under their authority. So when we do an infant baptism, we are saying precisely that. The same thing that was said in Old Testament times when circumcision was done. We're saying this mama and daddy have promised that they are going to raise their children in a Christian environment. They're going to use their influence to minister to their children whom they love, and they're going to teach them the things of God. Folks, that's what infant baptism is about. It is not a saving sacrament. The day must still come on the boys and must still come on every child of the covenant when the Holy Spirit comes on them by God's choice and brings them under conviction and they stand and say for themselves, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Then it's a completed transaction. And you can look back and say, it worked. They have accepted Christ. If you look at Genesis 18, 19. Genesis 18, 19. An interesting verse. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Doing righteousness and justice not to save them not to save himself, but as a result. The father, in this case, has been commanded to be the spiritual influence in that family and to work in the life of that family. And he says, I command this. He doesn't say, I suggest it. Or, what do you guys think about this? He says, this is how it works. And I want you to be obedient. I want you to be the spiritual head of your house. I want you to have a spiritual environment. I became a Christian in my very early 30s. Grew up in church. Was there all the time. Got married, got active in church. Didn't become a Christian until my early 30s. I left it to Linda. I was too busy earning money. I had that responsibility. Anybody identify with that? If I went and made the money, I had done what a husband ought to do. That ain't so, folks. I was ignorant of all of this. What he has done is he has commanded me and he has commanded you who have children by his grace to be an spiritual influence in your home. And that ought to stop right there for a moment and say, golly, our country's in trouble. Because the primary conveyance of that grace is literally falling apart in America. And that the family is in shambles. And we must do something about that. Because what we are doing is we are tampering with this grace process. 
and it will not be fulfilled in the lives of our children and our children's children and the people who live under our influence in the office place or anywhere else because that whole system is in jeopardy. A lot of us are grandparents. I encourage you. Don't stop encouraging your grandkids. Don't stop encouraging your children to be faithful to this teaching. I love the passage in Deuteronomy 6 where the Lord says, What I want my folks to do is I want you to take the Word of God and put it over your door and put it on both the posts, put it on your arm, put it up here on your forehead. I want you to live it and breathe it, and I want you to talk to your kids about it, and I want you to tell them about it day by day so they grow up all the days of their life, always knowing about God and about His grace and His mercy. We're the ones who grease the slide. We've got to quit throwing sand on the slide. We need to be intentional. And part of that comes with reconstituting the family and for us to personally take accountability. That's where you come in. You know, the last thing I asked before we baptized the boys was if you would take responsibility. You're a role model. People are watching you. At every stage of our life, other people watch us. You have the opportunity to influence other people, just like Abraham. For the Holy Spirit that dwells in you will use you to touch other people. And sometimes, folks, you won't even know they're looking. But people watch people. Children watch adults. And you and I need to be a positive role model. Folks, if there's something in your life that is not attractive spiritually, get it out of your life. Just tell that evil to flee and take a hike. Don't allow it to exist in your life. Because what it's doing is deterring your ability to be the positive role model that God wants as we keep covenant together. We want our children to look to us as examples and to see right through us, right to Jesus. It doesn't stop here. So I encourage you, look at your life. Look at your family. If there's something you need to shuck, shuck it. Get rid of it. And let's be covenant keepers. For most of us carry the sign. Let's have the substance. Do you understand? Do you understand? Got to make a change. And it needs to start with folks like us. I'm going to give us a moment as we bow our heads. Something you need to get right with the Lord. Do that. If the Holy Spirit's already revealed to you there's something in your life that needs to be dealt with, deal with it. Put it at the foot of the cross. If there's something you didn't do with your kids when they were growing up and you look back and you say, I wasn't the covenant keeper I should have been, ask his forgiveness and let's move on as healed and forgiven people. If there's something you're doing right now that you need to get rid of, give it to him and ask his forgiveness. Let's pray together.
Father, you've given your Son for us the ultimate act of grace. And by that grace, we are saved through Jesus, our Savior. By that grace, Lord, our name's over a door in the hall in the kingdom that's going to be forever and ever. And you've got a place reserved for us. But between now and then, you want us to be covenant keepers. I pray, dear God, that we would do that more effectively with a new enthusiasm and a new commitment. I pray you'd use us as a positive role model to influence other folks. Thank you for our time with you this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You and I are about to walk out that door, aren't we? Back into a very familiar setting. Some of which may not be very positive spiritually. Some of which may not encourage us spiritually. I challenge you and I encourage you to walk out of here with a new commitment to be the people God wants you to be. And I'll walk with you. And I'll give my best. Will you give yours? God bless you and God keep you, my friends. May his face shine on you and may you feel the power of his presence. And may you walk in his spirit. And may he get all the glory and all the praise. For he's the one who loves us. God bless you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.